Frank Ling. And I'm Charles Lee. And you're listening to the Grok Science Show. That's right. It's a weekly look at the world of science, technology, and their effects on our daily lives. Coming up on today's program, Professor Ian Stewart will join us to discuss Do Dice Play God? So stay tuned for all of this. Plus the Grokatron 5000. And our world-famous question of the week. Coming right up. Here. On the Grok's Science Show. Rock's Science Show. Well, the world seems wholly unpredictable, but how can math help? Well, joining us today to discuss this issue is Professor Ian Stewart. Professor Stewart is the Emeritus Professor of Mathematics at the University of Warwick. His recent books include Calculating the Cosmos, Significant Figures, In Pursuit of the Unknown, and his most recent release is entitled Do Dice Play God? The Mathematics of Uncertainty. And Professor Stewart, very pleased to have you today on the Grok's Science Show. Well, thank you very much for letting me talk to your listeners. Well, it's a very fascinating book. It's today's day and age when everything seems a bit uncertain. Why you decide to write the book? Well, I've always been interested in this, uh, it, the, the mathematics of uncertainty, although it's not my primary research area. But um, there are lots of different mathematical techniques that are used nowadays to try and understand uncertainty and uh, do the best we can in uncertain circumstances. And although there are quite a few books around that tackle you know, various parts of this, like probability theory, there wasn't a book that kind of covered the whole um, gamut of the different kinds of mathematics that were used. And I thought it would be interesting to try and get a picture of that and also how these different um, mathematical techniques and ideas and things from physics and things from uh, even the social sciences, how they kind of interact with each other and fit together. Um, also, the first popular science book I wrote that um, in any way got any notice from anybody was called um, Does God Play Dice? So I thought it would be nice to kind of <laughs> uh, round off by having another book um, with a similar but rather turnaround title. Question of uh, who's really in charge? A- absolutely. That's right. That's. I mean, when, when when Einstein said something along the lines of he didn't think God played dice with the universe, talking about quantum mechanics, that was really what he meant. You know, who's in charge here? Are there are there laws of nature, or is it all random? Uh, you know, what what is driving the universe? And he uh, was was very much in favour of the idea that there are well defined natural laws, as they tended to call them in those days, and uh, we still do to some extent. Um, but uh, the general view in physics has become that deep down quantum mechanics is irreducibly random in certain respects. Although actually one of the things I do cover in the book is the question of whether in fact this is this is true or whether there's new work which suggests that maybe it's not quite as simple as that. Well, maybe you'd take a step back and talk about the different types of uncertainty that we're talking about. Well, that's right. I, I sort of classified it into six different um approaches to uncertainty the 
Um, back in ancient times, before science really got going, uncertainty was the, the way human beings handle uncertainty was to consider this as being driven by the the whims of the gods. And so, if there was an earthquake, then you know this was that the earth god was was rather annoyed with you. Um, and so, classes of people grew up who acted as intermediaries between humanity and the gods, or at least that's what they said they were doing. And everyone kind of seemed fairly happy with this. So rulers would consult oracles to find out what to do and so forth. Um, it was even fairly systematic in some ways. And the ancient Babylonians compiled a kind of book in uh, their play tablets um, of how to how to you know, how to read the actually the liver of a slaughtered animal uh, to uh, foretell the future. Um, so, however, it wasn't very scientific. And the the next stage was when probability theory, mathematicians um, started to invent probability theory to, to put a number to how certain you, or uncertain you are about um, some particular event, whether it's going to happen. And that came out of gambling and astronomy, in fact. Um, the third way of approaching it was to realize that some things that we think are uncertain or used to think are uncertain, there are in fact hidden rules, laws governing them. So when Isaac Newton wrote down the law of gravity, the motion of the planets, which had previously been, you know, not there were some patterns, but basically it was all rather puzzling. Suddenly the whole thing fitted together and made sense. And so uncertainty was just banished completely by this. The next stage was quantum mechanics, which said, well, yeah, but sometimes the laws of nature are such that they really are deep down underneath on the very small scale. Things happen apparently at random. There doesn't seem to be a specific mechanism that decides exactly when a, a radioactive atom decays. Um, it, it will it will decay when it when it feels like it. Um, I always feel, well, how does it know what to do? But nonetheless, this is the view. Um, the next discovery was that going back to classical mathematics, so you don't have quantum uncertainty anymore. The, you work with a system where the rules are really very precisely defined and there is no uncertainty built into the mathematical equations, the rules that the system is following. But you can get what's called chaos. Um, people have heard of this now quite a lot. Uh, so in a chaotic system, even though you know the rules, the prediction of its future, given what it's doing now, starts to go wrong after some relatively short period of time. And the reason is very tiny errors in observing what it's doing now can blow up and amplify in positive feedback loop and um, your future prediction just becomes completely wrong because of these tiny, tiny errors. And of course, you can never observe a real system with perfect accuracy you know, to infinitely many decimal places. So that was the next one. And the final um, approach to uncertainty is the realization that these are not, the mathematical ones here, are not four separate ways of thinking about the universe and about our place within it and about how to predict the future and so forth. These are four different aspects of a kind of integrated system and they all have connections with each other. And you can, you can often make progress by borrowing tools from one area of mathematics and applying it in another one of these areas.
some level of cases where it's just fundamentally unknowable and some cases where inability to measure these things is fundamentally unknowable. Yeah, absolutely. That sums it up very well. Yeah. There must be ways, of course, for dealing with these types of uncertainty and how, how have we approached that? That's right. Well, you, you will have noticed, everyone notices now that when uh, on weather forecasts, they start to say things like 25% chance of rain. <laughs> and this is on the one hand using a probability theory approach. The probability that it will rain tomorrow is 25%. And what they mean by that is um, that um, no, on four days when we make this statement, on one day it will rain and the other three it probably won't. So they're saying it's going to be on, you know, all else being equal, three out of four days where you say that, then it won't rain and one out of four it will rain. But the way these numbers are arrived at is actually using the chaos in the weather system. So it, in the early days of weather prediction, they thought, well, we know the, the laws of physics for the atmosphere and the humidity, the moisture in the atmosphere and so forth. All we have to do is run the equations and the better the computers get, the more accurate the forecast will be, and we'll be able to predict the weather months and months and months ahead with almost complete accuracy. But thanks to chaos, that just doesn't work. So what they do now is take the best possible measurements they can of the weather right now and run a forecast, let's say for the next 10 days. Often they do this for the entire northern hemisphere all in one go. Um, but having done that, they then say, now we will randomly change the numbers that we measured. Make tiny little random changes. We'll actually make the observations in a sense worse or at least slightly different. And these won't be real observations anymore. They'll be random changes to the original observations. And we'll run the weather forecast again and see what happens that time. And you'll do this maybe a hundred times because computers are so fast nowadays you can do that. So now you've got a collection of 100 forecasts of the weather over the next 10 days, all based on the measurements we've got, but also very slight changes, which is what we might have got instead, just because of inaccuracies in the instruments. And then you can look at those 100 forecasts and say, now, what's the majority verdict on this? Is it going to rain tomorrow? Mm, well, 25 of them say yes, but the other 75 say no. So that's telling us there's about a 25% chance of rain tomorrow. Um, and so you can start to get a handle on not just the prediction, but on how accurate you think that prediction will be. And sometimes the weather will be in a very nice state where you can predict it days and days ahead, maybe three or four days ahead with considerable accuracy, maybe even six or seven days ahead. Um, but sometimes you look at it and these forecasts are all over the place, this hundred forecasts that you make. So it's, it's, in a very unpredictable state. And uh, a lot of weather forecasting now, at least it may not turn up this way on your television screen, but behind it, the information they're using is based on this kind of mathematical technique. Don't just forecast the weather once, forecast it a hundred times with tiny random changes to see how sensitive the forecast is to those changes. Down here in the south, when they show the weather models of the hurricanes approaching, you see that cone of different tracks that you get from the different models. That's right. And that's a relatively new way of presenting the information. Not so long ago, you go back 20 or 30 years, certainly, they just would have said, well, we, we think it's going to go to New Orleans or whatever. Um, now they actually try to give you a picture of the, the amount of uncertainty and the range that's likely. And this is 
this is one of the ways we handle uncertainty. We can't stop being uncertain, but we can put some numbers to exactly how uncertain we are, what range of things you should expect. And it, it's, you can plan better if you know that. The planning may still go wrong. You can plan your picnic. Oh, yeah, 75% chance it'll be dry tomorrow. Out you go on your picnic and, oh, dear, it rains. Certainly in this country it does. What about that, that other type that's so mysterious, the quantum uncertainty that seems to exist at that fundamental level? This is absolutely fascinating. And um, the, um, it's this realization that's come in that um, certainly that the way that the orthodox physicists handle quantum mechanics, and quantum mechanics is probably the most successful physical theory ever. <laughs> so, um, you know, let, let's, uh, even if I may uh, suggest some alternatives in a minute, um, you know, this is, this is very good stuff, and there are very nice mathematical theories, but the quantum world is very strange because it seems to be um, things that you think little, ought to be little tiny particles, the basic particles of matter, often behave like waves. Um, they're like ripples on the surface of a pond. And in particular, ripples on the surface of a pond will interact with each other. And where two ripples overlap, you'll actually get a higher peak. And where a trough of one ripple interacts with the peak of another, it all cancels out. And that's not like um, uh, pool balls bouncing off each other, you know, sort of discrete particles. This is very much a wave phenomenon. And the strange thing with quantum mechanics is that uh, light, for example, this is the first thing that they realize, light seems to behave like a particle in some circumstances, but it also seems to behave like a wave. And when you put this all together, um, it means that the state of a quantum system, what it is actually doing at this moment, is not a single clear thing. Um, the electron can have a spin, so-called, and the spin can be pointing up or it can be pointing down. Or it can be in a mixture of the two. <laughs> and that's slightly harder to understand. Uh, it's like two waves on the pond, which are actually simultaneously coexisting. And where they overlap, they interact. And the quantum states of an object can simultaneously coexist and overlap with each other. Um, the most famous version of this is um, Schrodinger's cat. This is the... Um, thought experiment which leads to a cat that is both alive and dead at the same time but you don't know which it is it's in a box and it's only when you open the box that you find out whether the cat's alive or dead um, and what caused it to be alive or dead was some quantum uh, phenomenon which if it went one way the cat stays alive and it goes the other way the cat was killed um, you know, great shame for the cat um, but uh, this was originally invented by Erwin Schrödinger to say, look, hang on, quantum mechanics might be like that, but cats are not like that. <laughs> the classical world that we actually live in, a cat is either alive or it's dead. You may not be in some circumstances, sure, but it won't ever be both at once. But in the quantum world, effectively, cats can be alive and dead at the same time. And this is all very puzzling, and there's been an awful lot of discussion of it. And the orthodox story is basically, well, that's what it's like. And uh, you may never actually see a cat both alive and dead uh, in our world, but that's because of the way the quantum, the, the very small-scale quantum effects, when they 
come up to something very big like a cat, um, you don't the, the superpositions don't work properly anymore. So you can't actually overlap the states. And nonetheless, fundamentally, you can. Um, but there's some more recent work, and there's, there's always been a, an ongoing argument which started with Einstein, which was along the lines of, well, maybe there's something going on inside the quantum particle that we're not observing, which is actually completely deterministic and tells it tells the radioactive atom when to decay. You know, so it's like there is some sort of machine inside, and it is completely deterministic, nothing random about it. But if that was chaotic, then you would get a probability distribution of decay times, so to speak. The probability of the atom decaying in the next minute or the next hour or the next day would follow a definite mathematical rule. Um, and that would be a probability rule. But it's actually created by this internal deterministic dynamic. It was often called a hidden variable. And initially, it looked like you could explain quantum uncertainty in terms of, well, there's this hidden variable, but we're not observing it. My analogy for that is, take a coin and you toss it. It either comes down heads or tails. This is like a quantum system which has two possible states, up or down, heads or tails. But when the coin's in the air flipping over, you don't know which way it's going to land. And all the best you can say is, well, with probability about 50% it will be heads, with 50% it will be tails. Now, which side comes up when the coin hits a table is determined by how it's spinning in the air. But if you're not observing that, you can only measure what happens when it hits the table. You won't have this internal dynamic, these hidden variables going on to tell you what's going to happen. And so for quite a while, Einstein particularly favoured that kind of explanation. Oh, there is something, you know, the, the particle is vibrating in some way, and those vibrations are actually telling it when to decay. Um, but we can't observe the vibrations. They're on too small a scale. But then some other discoveries based on a rather deeper understanding of how quantum mechanics work pretty much rules out that kind of hidden variable theory. There's a thing called Bell's theorem, which was proved by a physicist called John Bell, which um, basically says, well, if there is a hidden variable system going on, then you can make certain quantum measurements and they will correlate with each other in a particular way. Um, and when they and if they don't, yeah, so whereas if it's just a quantum system that does not have hidden variables, you could get a different pattern to these correlations. The, the sizes of certain things would be related in different manner. And when you do the experiments, the quantum one works and the hidden variable one doesn't. So physicists pretty much ruled out the hidden variable theories and said, oh, okay, Bell's theorem says these can't happen. We've done the experiments. The quantum world isn't like these hidden variable theories. Therefore, there isn't some underlying deterministic dynamic. But what's been happening ever since is people trying to find loopholes in Bell's theorem. <laughs> ah, yes, but there's a, there's a hidden assumption. And if we, it just means that we have to have the right kind of hidden variable theory. And in fact, very recently, some physicists published a paper which showed that um, if the, the question is, does quantum mechanics actually model any physical system, 
or does it only model particular laboratory-based systems and things of that kind? And does it go wrong when it gets to something more complicated? And they ended up writing down three assumptions which physicists will be very, very happy with. They're rather technical, so I won't say what they are. But on the basis of three assumptions which every physicist would believe, um, quantum mechanics cannot model accurately two physicists making quantum measurements. The system is not the measurements, it's the physicists and the measurements. So this is a very complicated quantum system. Yeah, a physicist is a huge collection of fundamental particles. Um, but they did the sums in the usual way and showed that there is some sort of contradiction in these three assumptions. Um, one of which is that quantum mechanics can model any classical system. And what they said was if those three assumptions are correct, the classical system consisting of two physicists making certain measurements cannot be accurately modeled within quantum mechanics. So the whole story is kind of biting its tail now. And it's controversial. Uh, it's partly controversial because people don't like it. It's partly controversial because it's actually quite complicated to check that the math is correct. Um, then you worry that the interpretation may be wrong. Um, so it's sparking quite a lot of discussion. But it does seem that maybe there is something in the way quantum mechanics is set up that isn't quite mathematically and logically consistent. My personal view is it's probably to do not with the wave equation and the laws that govern the motion of the fundamental particles. It's to do with the extra bolt-on assumptions we make when we set up a specific model. And physicists will talk about um, a a half silver mirror or a beam splitter where you fire a photon at a, a mirror uh, which is an angle to the photon's path and half the time it gets reflected and bounces off and half the time it passes through and this is modeled just as a crisp object which either lets it bounce or pass through and does nothing else to it except when it bounces it changes the phase of the wave now, a real beam splitter isn't like that. It's a very, very complicated collection of particles, and the photon hits it and bounces off lots and lots of these things, and sometimes emerges and goes off in one direction, and sometimes it goes passes through. Um, so I wonder if this crisp assumption of how you model a beam splitter is where some of these paradoxes are coming from, because actually the real world is not like your crisp assumption which in a sense contradicts the wave nature and the fuzziness of the quantum world. But that, that's just my view. You close the book with a chapter, Uncertain Uncertainties, and there are things that we can know, things that we can't know, and things that we don't know we don't know. How do we deal with that? That's right. Well, I think um, the way we deal with that is, is, is kind of contingency planning. If you go into a very complicated situation saying, oh, we know how all this stuff works. Yeah, it's going to be like this. Uh, oh, that's completely impossible. That cannot possibly happen. Um, you are courting disaster because our models are never perfect. We never know exactly what's going on. And even if just at the back of your mind is a sort of yes, but <laughs> let's just bear in mind that maybe the way we think this works. I mean, if you think of the, um, the financial crash back in 2008, the, the banks, genuinely thought that what they were doing was was safe they had mathematical models that told them it was safe it was risk-free well that turned out to be wrong and it was wrong because the models didn't entirely correspond to reality but 
if everyone at that time had a rather better grasp of, okay, now the models are telling this, but let's just, you know, use a bit of common sense here. Maybe those models are not absolutely perfect. Maybe if you push them too hard, too often, something's going to break. Shouldn't we have something up our sleeves to deal with that problem should it occur? So don't bet the entire farm on house prices rising forever. <laughs> um, it's not going to happen. And at some point it's going to go wrong and you ought to be prepared for that. So uh, it's important to realize that there are so-called black swan events is one of the buzzwords for it. So um, these are things that up to a certain point in our uh, understanding of the world, these things are completely impossible. It, there used to be a time when there were no known black swans. Um, and then it turned out in Australia, there were black swans all over the place. And suddenly your whole worldview changes in terms of what color can swans be. Well, it's the same with financial modeling or um, economic forecasting, political predictions, all of these things. You know, sometimes something is sitting there waiting to happen that you have simply not built into your theory of what's going on. We were just talking with Professor Ian Stewart. His new book is entitled Do Dice Play God? The Mathematics of Uncertainty. And Professor Stewart, so man, thank you so much for your time. Terrific. Thank you very much. And that's all for this week's edition of the Grok Science Show. Make sure you tune in next week for more from the world of science and technology. If you'd like to contact us here, you can email us at science at groks.net. For Grok Science, I'm Frank Ling. And I'm Charles Lee. Make sure you also see us on the web at www.grox.net. Have a great afternoon and keep on grokking.